0: Welcome to the Defining Endurance podcast, a show focused on celebrating the everyday lives of athletes, coaches, and business owners. In this podcast, we break down both the applied science of training and the larger-than-life concepts of how people tackle their lives' biggest goals. We do this by embracing the mental, physical, and emotional demands of what it truly takes to be an endurance athlete. I'm your host, Andrew Simmons. I'm the head coach overseeing adult running programs' Lifelong Endurance as well as the head running coach at Peak Performance Running here in Golden, Colorado. Most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of endurance sports, interested in understanding how we can reach a personal athletic potential. I wanna thank you for joining me. Now let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to the Defining Endurance podcast. Today's guest is Howie Stern. Howie is best known as the photographer of all things ultra running. He's been at major world record attempts and completions, all of Candice Burt's 200s, and has traveled worldwide to photograph athletes in their element. Today's episode takes a stab at documenting a piece of ultra running history, capturing the arc of Howie's life, exploring his own personal physical limits as an athlete struggling with an eating disorder to expanding his creative limits as a musician and photographer. If you pick up a copy of Ultra Running Magazine, you're all but guaranteed to find Howie's work sprinkled throughout. Howie is best known for capturing the emotions of the moment, from the sheer bliss to the true pain of racing. I'm excited for all of you to get a full picture on Howie Stern. Let's dive into today's episode. It's good, let's see here. Cool, all right. Hey. We are officially recording here, so uh, we'll give it just, uh, just a second. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, really excited to have Howie Stern here with me today. Um, Howie, thanks for joining us. Oh, my
1: pleasure, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm pretty excited to actually uh, dive into a little bit about uh, you know where you're living and uh, you know kind of kind of the adventures that come with living in a in a small town in a storied town, but. Before we, we, we get to, to current events, I actually want to take us back a little bit, and uh, one of my favorite things to ask guests on this show is uh, kind of going through the chapter, chapters of your life, so uh, take us back a little bit to kind of where did you grow up, like maybe ages, you know, you know, zero to ten, or, you know, did you move around a lot as a kid? Like, take us through that first chapter of your life.
1: I originally, I was actually born in New York City, and then lived in New Jersey till I was 13. And then uh, people sometimes trip out when they're like, oh, wow, you were adopted. Yeah, I was adopted at birth, um, but went to a wonderful family. And just growing up in New Jersey, my parents were not physically active whatsoever, but we had a lot of woods or forests by where I lived. And I always liked to kind of explore around with my friends or myself. And I think when I was seven, I started skiing. And got crazy into skiing. I liked hiking around. I liked riding bikes with my friends. But I had no interest in any kind of running at that point. But when I was 13, my dad got transferred to California. And my whole family moved to Southern California um, in 1983. And that kind of like started definitely a huge chapter, a next chapter in my life as the West Coast was just this gigantic, big world, it seemed like, with so many possibilities that the East Coast, at least for me, didn't seem to be. But kind Absolutely. of, a, yeah, it was definitely like, growing up East Coast, it was sort of like, you know, as a kid, it's like, you just knew you went to school, and all the parents in the neighborhoods had the stickers of the college that they're <laughs> Kids were going to. And so you just knew you were going to school, and then you'd graduate high school and you'd go to college and probably go work for some big giant company for the rest of your life. And, suit and tie. Um,
0: suit and tie.
1: Right. And that was my dad. Um, you know, suit and tie went to work early, came home late every night, um, but he was the provider. My mom was a stay at home mom, and, you know, we kind of had the fairly stereotypical. Kind of growing up back there, but for some reason, that just didn't really even at that age when I was ten or eleven, I just kind of it somehow didn't seem like it was me, but you know like what am I going to do? It's like you just you're a kid, so you just kind of go along but somewhere when we moved to California when I was uh i think thirteen my i always loved music i had started playing trumpet when i was 7 and i played for like 6 years but i was kind of getting bored of that and i was really interested in drums my mom was always super supportive of stuff that i liked to do like whereas my dad was always like the business person you know school college career my mom was like but what makes you happy <laughs> right so it's like when my dad would go on business trips. It's like, oh, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, howie, let's go to the music store. You want to get a drum set? And my dad comes home from a trip. Oh, there's a drum set in the living room. <laughs> and and then like a year later, I got, I wanted to play guitar. And um, so when I was 14, again, my dad was on a business trip. My mom takes me to the music store, and I buy my first guitar. That kind of started off on a whole different journey. Because my life kind of in high school, I wasn't an athlete at all. Um, mm. I, loved, I loved to ski. I loved to ski race. Um, my big passion was music. And, and so it was like I'd go to school all day. I'd come home. I'd practice drums from like 3 in the afternoon until 6 when my dad came home. We'd eat dinner. And then I'd play guitar from like 7 o'clock until midnight every night and uh, somewhere in there, maybe I'd do some homework. I don't know.
0: (laughs) So what? school was definitely not the priority uh, in those teenage years. It was, you know, space between... It was the annoying thing you had to do in between uh, playing guitar.
1: Pretty much. Like, I mean, I was an okay student. Like, some subjects gave me trouble, but if it was, like, science, I could get A's in science. Um, But if I wasn't interested, I just, you know, I'd get a C. So I was like, you know a bc student hot and cold <laughs> yeah and but rarely i i never like failed classes or things like that i
0: i could play the game enough to pass stuff but um so that that definitely shows your your creative side you know you you definitely found kind of that uh the creative your creativity of of playing guitar you know playing music did you did you just pick it up did you take lessons did you that's it, pretty pretty crazy
1: It was interesting because, yeah, back in 1984 or 85, yeah, there was no such thing as tablature. It's like you either had to use your ear or you had to read music. And most of the time, you know, like I just – I generally just used my ear, but you're sitting there with like a cassette player, you know, play, rewind, play, rewind, um, over and over. But, you know, I – and I used to see live music a lot. The clubs there, they let people under – Eighteen in, and you know I could see some and I lived only a half hour from a, a sunset strip in Hollywood, Ooh. so I had access to as soon as I got was able to drive, I could go every weekend to watch music, or before that you know my mom would take me and my friends you know to the local clubs, drop us off at eight o'clock, and then pick us up at midnight or whatever, or somebody always could drive <laughs> but you know by the time I was sixteen. Um still like a junior in high school or the summer of my junior year. Like I was already playing now in the clubs in Hollywood. Like my first gig ever was at the Whiskey when I was 16 on the Sunset Strip. So I got lucky to have an early start in it.
0: So would you say that kind of that, you know, growing up East Coast, you know, then moving to California and learning how to play music was like, the next chapter of your life was that really playing music and being in bands and you know kind of on tour or how, how did the those next couple of years play out
1: well that was that was the dream like oh i i kind of still knew i was going to go to college because that really wasn't not an option in my right. house but playing music and touring you know the world was kind of the dream and what i wanted to do and I was a super shy kid growing up. Um, it was hard for me to talk to people, and I just had a small circle of friends. But if you gave me a guitar and put me on stage, I didn't care if there was a thousand people out there. Like, that was the guitar was my voice, or whatever instrument was my it's like voice.
0: It, it, it was like your, your protective thing, right? Like, did you become a, you become a completely different person then?
1: Um, I still wasn't somebody that jumped around like nuts on stage but you could you know i could play you know so loud the entire state could hear you and i had super like i had confidence in my abilities on the instrument so getting on stage was just yeah i just loved to perform and and to see the reaction of people listening and and the interaction of the other players on stage like it was you're part of this team and then just to spread kind of how that affects other people like it's a beautiful kind of thing to to be a part of and it was always interesting because my dad would come to my gigs and i'll never forget like the first one and the place was full and and you know we were like a hard rock heavy metal kind of band and so we all had long hair and everything and, <laughs> and you know and he comes up and he's like He's like, look at this. Is this what you want to do with your life? Look at all, look at all these long hair freaks. And I'm like, yeah, isn't this great? (laughs) You know, your quiet little kid gets up on stage, and you know, the place goes crazy. You know, it's this is this is amazing. Yeah, this is what I want to do. (laughs) Um, You know, and I'm just a kid, but I'm playing with like the singer in my band was 24 the drummer was 34 and you're playing all these clubs and around all these adults and in that time period i mean it's like every drug known to man is oh man is out there and it's backstage and um for me i i never did any of it i was so excited to like just play music and the kind of endorphin high of being on stage was all I ever needed whereas my bass player and the rest of the band you know were doing tons of cocaine and drinking and and smoking weed and and acid and shrooms like everything and I was like the only sober one
0: <laughs> and that that must have been a little a little difficult right being in that you know in, in that environment and then being the one person that wasn't was that like something that puts you out as an outcast or is that just like oh that's that that's how he and that's how he operates that's
1: i was lucky that yeah all the people in my circle they respected that it's like no that's how we that's not his thing they would offer once i'd refuse and they're like okay cool that's that's not your thing that's fine so i never really had that peer press to um conform that way people just for whatever reason maybe it's just the friends i chose or the people i chose to play with they just respected that that was my choice and they didn't think anything less of it um and i never felt like excluded from things you know like my only rule was like if we're driving somewhere it's like either i'm the one driving or it's like i'll call my parents to have me you know pick me up from somewhere because i didn't want to you know be in the car with somebody that's drunk driving or no doubt. You know, waste wasted on whatever but yeah it was never really a problem but
0: that's that that's good to hear you know i, I just i i was born in the late 80s so you know <laughs> you you and i grew up in different different eras for sure right um, so i i'm curious so playing music and then you know going to school you know to, your dad is kind of the suit and tie guy. I'm, I have this mental image of, you know, him being the one guy in a suit and tie at a, at a show with all the, all the long haired guys (laughs) in the back, just shaking his head in disappointment. Uh, So, you know, to, whether it was, uh, you know, to appease your dad or whatever it was. So you, you ended up, you ended up going to school. Was that like, did you have to take a break from music or was it always just kind of there in the background and and school just kind of was one of those things that you you had to get through again?
1: Yeah, so I went into I went to college, I went to Cal State Northridge and it was like 10 minutes from our home and but I went in as undecided because I really had no idea of what major to choose and um I think my first semester I wound up taking a classical guitar class because it's just like you could take it as an elective for your general ed requirement. Um I did well in it because I had already been playing kind of classical on my own. And the professor was like, you know, you really should think about becoming a music major, you know, doing like performance classical guitar, guitar. He's like, you know, you could study with me and we could work on your repertoire because most everybody in the class was just, they were taking it for fun. And, um, so he, he recognized that actually, you know, I had skill at it or a gift at it or whatever, and um, so I almost wound up going the classical guitar route. Um, and my dad even met with them, but you know, it's just my dad's personality was still too strong, <laughs> and I was still, I wasn't in the rebel phase yet.
0: <laughs> oh, you, so, hadn't, you, had, you hadn't hit that yet. I, I felt like the rebel phase was uh, on stage with. <laughs> <laughs> that That vision I have in my head,
1: yeah, no, I mean, that was still, yeah, it's but still it was forming. Just, i I could when he wasn't around, I could be that, but when I was still like in his domain, it was yeah, you just you you know you're under his roof, you live by his rules and and so I just didn't there was a lot of the outside world or that still was pretty far into me, um so i I didn't wind up going with classical guitar it's I probably should have stuck to it but <laughs> at at the same time i wound up joining the ski team at school we raced up in mammoth up in the sierra and um but little did i realize at the time really the ski team is what was going to kind of sort of change my life I'm kind excited. of the, what's
0: that i said i'm excited about this i <laughs> i i, I didn't i didn't see this turn coming <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was growing up through about 15 years old, I was always normal sized, whatever normal sized is. I mean, I was (laughs) tall for my age, but I was um, reasonably in shape. And then for whatever reason, like when I, from about 15 on, I, all of a sudden I went from five foot 10 or six feet tall and 170 pounds to all of a sudden like 215 pounds <laughs> and you know I had like 50 f- extra pounds on me so um, and when I started college it was the same thing I was like 215 pounds and I just kind of was sort of stocky all over um, but I, you know, like I said I was never like an athlete other than the skiing thing and then so I got onto the ski team and you know multiple times a month we would go to Mammoth to race or just to practice and train. And after my first year, I got tired of all my friends like beating me all the time. And I was a really good skier, but they just seemed to have something extra going on. And all of them were triathletes. I remember I think somewhere during my second year of college and my parents moved back east and I was on my own. I uh you know, we were still skiing all the time. My friends were still beating me. But since now my parents, you know, I lived on my own in California, they would just send a check once a month to cover rent and food and everything. And I wanted to ski more and more and more. So I realized, like, one way to do that was, like, basically spend no money on food and take all that food money and spend it on skiing. (laughs) So how do you do that? Well, on Monday, you buy a dozen bagels and a can of Hawaiian Punch and you make that last till Friday. <laughs>
0: oh, man.
1: <laughs> you know, when you're 18 years old, you do dumb stuff.
0: But you can also live on that. <laughs> at 18, you know? Maybe spice right. up
1: with a little ramen now and again. Right. And, and so that's what I did like Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday. And then I would go to Mammoth on the weekends. I would eat normally in Mammoth. But, you know, we're skiing all day long and racing and, and training and all that. Um, and long story short, in one semester, I went from 215 pounds back down to 170. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was not, yeah, because I, you know, was eating so little and I was, you know, active as hell doing all the um, skiing stuff. But during that summer, I was like, okay, like maybe, maybe I should start doing triathlon. Um, because all my friends are still skiing better than me and they're more fit than me. Well, maybe if I start doing what they're doing, it'll help with my ski racing. And I think that summer I bought a bike and started riding. Like, I'd visit my parents in the summer in New York. And so I started riding my bike around New York. And I started running, like, you know, three miles every day in the neighborhood. And, um, and- I just got discovered I was pretty fast on a bike. I sucked at running. Um, <laughs> And I was a good swimmer. Uh, Running, I just... I tolerated because it was just part of the sport, but I didn't particularly like... I didn't necessarily like it, but I didn't necessarily dislike it. It just hurt a lot. <laughs> but it's kind of funny to look back at the paces I ran way back then. You look at most ultras now and you'd be like, oh god, I wish I could run that fast Like in an ultra now for what I was doing when I was 19.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, no doubt. Watching uh, Watching those results come out of JFK 50 this last weekend, even though they got stopped by a train it's 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 becoming pretty crazy what what the ultra world has done you know used to be you'd look at the paces and you'd be like okay yeah that's kind of what i'd expect and now you're seeing sixes and sevens you, you know even on the women's side like ladies like camille are just you know absolutely tearing it up and courtney you know i know you've you've been behind the lens for a lot of these these yeah. ladies who are who are kind of breaking down new barriers but In the, the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, I can't, you know, imagine, you know, that you'd also see what triathlon would become.
1: No, it was, it was definitely a cool period. Um, I, as it turned out, I guess I started out basically as a trail runner from the get go because the triathlon team at school, we did all her training on trails that were in the area. We never ran on the roads because the roads you had to deal with stoplights and traffic and all the other stuff that's in the city. But like our school was all of 10 minutes away from the hills and same with my house, which was just all trails. And yeah, like every trail run we did, we were always going between 6.30 and eight minute miles no matter how long we ran for that's just what you did um you know like six something minute pace for me back then was still really hard like because i wasn't necessarily i wasn't gifted at running per se but you know you could still hold a seven thirty pace like for a really long time on a hilly hilly runs but again you know being 19 you just didn't know any better you did what everybody else did and um you know, there were no GPS watches, nothing. You just had your Timex Iron Man watch on and, you know, you kind of figured yeah. stuff out. It was
0: just went for time. And, and that was that was all that mattered. If it was a if it was supposed to be a hard day, it was a hard day. If it was an easy day, it was probably still a hard day.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because even the easy days were still at like a pretty decent clip. And um, but it was, you know, it. It was super fun. And maybe because, you know, at the same time, I'm, you know, riding my bike tons and you're swimming tons. So doing three sports at once, aerobically, you're just always so fit. Yeah. Um, And at 19 or 20, like your recovery is like so good. You can just go out hard.
0: You know, like that's. I I grew up uh you know much the same as you. I lost a bunch of weight in my early college years and found triathlon. And
1: um, oh, cool. You, yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and so I'm like I'm like oh this, this is telling my story and it was it was after my Ironman. You know when I did my first Ironman I was just like I I can just go. Like you have this like almost like gas pedal that just keeps you can keep pushing it into the floor almost. It's a it's a really, really interesting thing that happens when you start doing a lot of, lot of triathlon. So from, from the world of triathlon to then, you know, getting, getting that to Colorado, you know, what, what was that transition? Like, was it just you, you moved to Mammoth lakes and then, you know, you kind of found a calling to move out to Colorado. How'd you get from California to Colorado? And was there anything in the middle there?
1: Yeah, there's a lot in the middle, probably like four different lives. Um, you know, it's. I wound up being in Southern California for, like, 15 years, from, like, 13 to 28. Um, I eventually graduated college with, like, an industrial engineering degree, of all things. And I played the game for, like, five years doing engineering. I was even married and... And then eventually, somewhere when I was around um, I got married at twenty five I think, and oddly enough, like for my bachelor party, my friends took me rock climbing <laughs> um okay. before before doing the other bachelor <laughs> party stuff and um and I absolutely fell in love with rock climbing and and so like for like part of our wedding gifts or whatever, we had like REI gift certificates. So me and my ex, we got a bunch of rock climbing stuff. And and when I got into climbing, I dropped everything else. I stopped doing triathlon. I stopped doing skiing and I did nothing but <laughs> climb. And somewhere along the path of climbing, which subsequently ended my marriage and, <laughs>
0: um, that, well, does, just, that does sound like a, a whole nother lifetime.: Yeah.
1: I, and I'm still friends with, with that ex-wife, like um, we just grew apart. we just became different people, and we were young and whatever. We moved on. Um, but when I was climbing, I remember one of my climbing friends in Southern California he had a license plate frame that said, "Western States' Endurance Run." <laughs> and I was like, "What's that?" And so he told me, you know, what what Western States was. And then at the same time, and this was in the San Gabriel Mountains of Southern California, um, a lot of times when we would go to drive home from the climbing area, he'd be like, oh, we need to stop at this place called Shortcut Saddle to drop some water off for a friend who's training for the Angeles Crest 100. I'm like, what's that? (laughs) He's like, oh, it's this hundred mile running race through the through these mountains we're in and and i think that ultimately was the seed that got planted in my head mm. um for the long distance stuff because like western states it still didn't it just was a thing that somebody told me about but when this guy told me about the angeles crest 100 and i'm like wait these are the mountains i grew up in and and so every time I'd hike out of that climbing area, I'd be like, wow, what would it be like to run a hundred miles in these mountains? Like that just seems so like kind of far-fetched yet really
0: intriguing at the same time. Was in, oh, Was okay. that always like a, you know, how many, was it months or years after you heard about, you know, from seeing the license plate frame to, you know, Angeles Crest, like, was that was that a couple of months of you know climbing and thinking about it? Was it years? Like when was the the seed planted to when it when it became you know something that you're like all right I'm gonna get on the start line? Like what what was the the thought process there?
1: The whole process became a little convoluted. So like somewhere around that time, um, I was dating this other climber, and she had mentioned about diets and whatnot you know like oh if you lose body fat or this or that the other do this diet you know you'll probably climb better and um so i wound up getting a really wicked eating disorder for four years (laughs) That practically well it didn't technically almost kill me but it was making me wish i wasn't around anymore man as as eating disorders tend to do um And like I said, I had stopped doing triathlon and skiing and everything else and was so focused on climbing. So somewhere around 98, um, I was still in L.A. and still climbing and and battling this this eating disorder. And I remember looking, um, there was a... A restaurant in the middle of the forest up there, and in the and like on their little reading rack, yeah, they had one of the um the runner manuals for the Angeles Crest 100. You know, it was back in the day when everything was printed out, <laughs> yeah, and um, there was no online registrations or anything. And anyway, I read through the manual, and they had an address, you know, to send away for an application or whatever. And along the same time, I was like, well, climbing seems like it's turned into something really unhealthy for me, because all you're thinking about, well, the less I weigh, the better you can climb, and you get this super unhealthy relationship with food, and I was like, well, maybe if I get back into triathlon, my, you know it'll change my mindset, because I'm like, you have to eat in order mm-hmm. to do a triathlon. You can't you know, starve yourself or whatever it is. And, um, and so during that same year is when I was still working as an engineer and my eating disorder was kind of, it wasn't anorexia or bulimia. It was more like, uh, you know, binge eating on everything you could possibly stuff into your face for weeks at a time. And then eating completely perfect for like, weeks at a time and rinse and repeat for four years. So, and, and the times where you'd eat perfect, you'd be like, Oh, okay. I feel good again. And then all of a sudden you'd eat a trigger food and then you'd go off the deep end for a month to where you're just walking around your body's cramping because your electrolytes are so like completely out of whack and your digestion is so messed up. And, um, it was a cycle I just could not get out of. And and even and so like at some point I remember in the spring of 98 where like I would essentially go to sleep every night just wishing I didn't wake up because I just it was it just the cycle wouldn't end and it was I hated my job and everything else. And and so one day I remember calling in sick from uh, Mattel is the company I worked for at the time. And then I called in sick the next day. And then I called in sick the next day. And then I remember, I think on the Monday, going, you know you're never going back. <laughs> and I, I literally packed up everything and, and stuck it in my truck and went up to the Sierra. And uh, I remember waking up in some random campground going, wow, I'm homeless. This is awesome. I can now do what I can do anything I want. <laughs> I,
0: I, I don't think most people wake up in the homeless, like <laughs> in celebration for sure. So, it, so you just you just decided that you know one day you were just gonna stop. Like, it, was it a was it a light switch? And that's like you know it was just kind of like one day you're like, yeah, I think I'm just gonna get out of this situation and and move into the mountains.
1: It was, you know, like. I think when I was, when I was ski racing in college, the dream was to live in Mammoth. You know, I love the mountains. I love the Sierra. And, um, and when I got married, that's, was our plan as well. Like, Oh, we'll get married and then we'll, we'll move to Mammoth. And then after we were married, you know, suddenly my ex didn't want to leave her family and didn't want to leave the city and her job. And, and so when that marriage ended and, You know, I was single for like a year and I was dating somebody, but it was, you know, it was just a crazy rebound relationship. And I just was at the point in my head, I'm like, I'm absolutely so miserable right now. And while I would never actually do something to myself because I knew what it would do to my family, I was kind of like, if you're this miserable in life and everything feels so bad, like when you don't have your health, especially your mental health, then what's the point of everything else? Like jobs will come and go, but if you don't have your health, then all these other things don't matter. So I was like, whether or not I have a job or a place to live, the sun is still going to rise and set. And so I'm like, if you're going to be jobless and homeless, why not go somewhere beautiful?
0: <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and- why, Why not? Why not be happy? I think. I think one of the big big things I see, and I I can kind of see moving forward. I can kind of see where where ultra running kind of falls in here. I think one of the big undercurrents I see in the sport is, you know, ultra running has kind of been, you know, for better or for worse, for a lot of people, it's 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 either been, you know, healing or working through a lot of pain. You know, was it? You know, once you got into the Sierras, there was that a Was it just, I'm going to go out for hours on end and kind of explore and work through these things? Was the eating disorder still in the, in the picture at this point?
1: Yeah. So what wound up happening is when I moved up there, you know, at the time, like I had said, I I said, well, maybe if I get back in the triathlon. So I had, I had two goals of that first year. One was to have a good race at Wildflower, which was this half Ironman that was like May of that year, which I, which I wound up finally having a decent race even though i was battling the eating disorder like but i pulled it together and had a good race and then the other goal was like i need to i want to do an iron man and i picked an iron man that was actually in florida where my parents were living so that they could come watch and and so yeah i trained all summer long you know the eating disorder kind of was a little bit more on the back burner because now i was in the sierra and so like you know you've changed so much in your life and you're not around a lot of the same triggers as before but it was still there but just not that much and i wound up and i and i in my head i went okay so this summer my project and it was a fall iron man is to do an iron man my next year's project is the Angeles crest 100 and i wound up doing the iron man and I had a pretty good race and um my parents came and it was the first time in my my life I ever heard my dad say like now that I come out to see this he's like I finally get it I understand why you do what you do (laughs) which was kind of a breakthrough moment for him because he had never kind of conceded anything that I did you know had some sort of value you know because it was usually completely different from everything that he valued so it was it was cool to see him actually like kind of understand me a bit more um and maybe because like even growing up for whatever reason like he used to like watch, watch sports on tv and every year we would watch the iron man on nbc or abc whoever broadcast it and so he at least understood what an iron man was but i think for him to see it in person let alone to have his son do one was like a pretty cool moment for him but then you know the following year really like Ultra running for me, when I first got started, which was in 1999, uh, you had to do a 50 mile race in order to like uh, technically qualify to do the Angeles Crest 100. Yeah. There was a 50 miler in my neck of the woods called the Bishop, uh, called the yeah. Bishop High Sierra 50, and I was like, okay, that's in May, and I'll just start training for it. Initially, it wasn't so much the racing aspect that really got me interested in the big distance, at least in the Sierra. It was more like I hated backpacking. (laughs) (laughs) I hated carrying stuff. Like, I hated having a huge pack on. Like, I did it as a climber because you had your rope and gear, but I was never super happy about it. You know, I'd hear all these people doing these trips where it's like they're out for five days or seven days and the light bulb went off. It's like I can do your seven day trip in half a day if I just carry a couple of water bottles because I can run, you know, I can run 40 or 50 miles in a day and still be home for dinner <laughs> and and sleep in my bed. And then I don't have to carry that 70 pound pack on my back. And this was back in you know, late 90s. People were nobody. The ultralight stuff. Was still like a figment of most people's imagination. Nobody thought about going super light on stuff. It was usually super heavy. People were wearing leather hiking boots. And here would be me coming running up this 12,000 foot pass in my road running shoes with like, you know, a water bottle. And people would be like, How are you doing that? And I'm like, I don't have 60 pounds on my back. I just have this bottle of water and like a granola bar or a fig bar, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like it's to move five miles an hour through the mountains felt at least to my 29 year old body, like pretty easy. And so it was to me, ultra running back then was a way to explore my new mountains uh, because there was just, you know, thousands of miles of trails in the Sierra and it was just every weekend, you know, it's just, you literally pull out a topo map and you go like, oh, what trails can I string together? And you'd add up all the mileage. It was always this fun process. You know, Again, there was no GPS. There was no all trails, none of these programs. You just pulled out topo maps and you looked and you go, well, that looks kind of an interesting area. Or there was this book, Sierra, uh, High Sierra Peaks, Passes and Trails by RJ Secor. It was like the Bible of the Sierra everything in there and you'd whether you'd sit on the toilet and read it for hours or (laughs) you know it's like you just wherever you were you'd be looking at this book and go "Oh, okay i want to do this tomorrow or do this this weekend and it was just running was a cool way to explore the mountains you lived in and that was that was the genuine reason i really got into running far um was to just explore without carrying a lot of weight.
0: <laughs> when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personalized trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash defining endurance. That's insidetracker.com forward slash defining endurance. Would you would you consider yourself a, a minimalist I, uh, as as both a, an athlete but also as a, as a person in general?
1: Um, kinda, you know. I as far as like when it came to like the shoes, I kind of played around with minimalist stuff, but just for my like, I'm six foot, one hundred and sixty seven pounds. Like minimal, I like I like cushion. Like M B size. Like I've just run. I'm 51 now. I've run too many miles in my life. So my, my feet just like cushion. <laughs> um, and my low back, I've got a low back injury. So like minimal shoes never worked for me. But as far as like all the, the gear, yeah, I just like to go as, as light as I can. Even running 100 miles now, like Hard Rock, yeah, I'll wear like a hydration vest. But most of the times, if I can get away with just carrying water bottles, that's more of my jam. Um but in in life in general, yeah, there was a four year period I just lived in my truck. So, like, I really don't need that much. But, so, uh,
0: so bring us to today. You know, now you're you're Howie Stern, the the photographer. You're not known as Howie Stern, the the musician or rock climber uh, or right. or triathlete for that matter. Excuse me. Uh, yeah. You're known as as the photographer, you know, and the, and, and let alone that you're known as the ultra running photographer. There, <laughs> there's, there's a, a, you know, a couple of other guys like, you know, Scott Rokis and a few of those others that are out there, but you guys are all good friends. You guys work together and how, yeah. so how, how did you come to, you know, a camera? What was your first camera?
1: Um, yeah, that's, that was kind of a interesting journey in itself. And, one that I would have never seen. I mean, if you want to know my first actual camera was like when I was 13 and I got like a Minolta SLR an X700. And I took I took photography in high school for 4 years so I learned, you know, to shoot film and process film and use a dark room and all that stuff. But really it was all kind of for fun back then. Like I didn't know really what I was doing. Mm. kind of but you know i learned kind of about composition and exposure i think i more was doing it because i had a friend who was way into it and i just kind of like you know it was something we just did for fun and i then hadn't touched a camera for like 20 probably like 24 years Wow. <laughs> other than you know what was in your phone or the occasional point and shoot camera but uh The condensed version of what led to it is I lived in Mammoth like 17 years. And um, pretty much all of those years, you know, as a runner, um, I still climbed. I obviously still skied living in Mammoth, but and went through two more marriages. (laughs) And uh, after the the last marriage ended in 2004, and we owned the condo in Mammoth. And I was a high school teacher at the time. And when I was going through that divorce in the spring of 2014, I was kind of burned out on teaching. I was sort of burned out on um, a mortgage payment (laughs) and just, you know, I just felt really confined. Um, And it sort of was like, well, the marriage is ending. We're going to sell our condo. I was like, well, maybe I should just resign from teaching at the end of the school year. Maybe I'll just get back and do music. Like, I don't know, like I, I was just really torn in the directions because I, I discovered I think one of the things I liked, didn't like about engineering, I didn't like about teaching was having to be somewhere every day at this time for this long. And you do that, you know, just kind of the routine of the same things over and over and over again. And, and there was a period, there was a whole chapter in life where I actually did wind up playing music full time. And, oh, wow. you know, I was kind of like, well, maybe I want to go back to that. And really go for it. And so, in the summer of 2014, after our divorce was done and our condo was sold, you know, I, I, every year I would come to San Juan's in Colorado to do Hard Rock. And by this point, um, in 2014, I was going for my sixth finish. And my friend owned a hotel in town, uh, the Avon, that he only opened during Hard Rock, just for a bunch of us that stayed there every year, and they had like a um a stage in the basement with another bar and we had all our music stuff down there and there was a bunch of locals that would jam and and this guy had been trying to sell the hotel forever and he's like yeah I wish you know somebody would buy it and have like set it up for we could have a studio in the basement and bands can come they could spend a month at the hotel and you know have this You know, vibe created and do their thing, and and he told me he's like, well, you know, he he owned the house across the street, and he never lives in it except for when during Hard Rock, and he's like, he knew my music stuff and whatnot. He's like, well, if you want to live in my house, you can stay there as long as you want, just pay the utilities. You know, if you want to go work on your music, you know, I know like maybe being up here will help you be creative. And I was like, "Wow, like that's a dream!" Like,
0: yeah, that's a special opportunity. Those don't come know. come by too often.
1: No, I'm like, because one Silverton meant the world to me because of Hard Rock, and I'm like, and now I can actually live in Silverton. Like, that was like mind blown. Like, I couldn't believe it. And so later that summer, um, yeah, after doing Hard Rock, and um, I, I wound up, you know, camped out of bit and mammoth and whatnot but then i came back to silverton to live yeah it was like being on cloud nine i couldn't it it was hard to fathom having the hard rock course in the san juans as your backyard that you could just go out on every day it was just me and my dogs uh, me mickey and joey and like mickey mickey was always my dog i had gotten him from a friend who owned a sled dog business in Mammoth and joey was a dog that we got when i was married it was from friends of my ex-wife and we had three dogs um in the divorce like she kept her dog mickey was always my dog and then when it came to joey i was like well joey's a snow dog like mickey so it makes sense to keep them together so is it okay if i took joey as well and fortunately she's like sure that's fine I was like, ah, oh, cool! Thank goodness something went right. <laughs> and so the three of us just became, you know, the truly inseparable trio. I was just exploring everywhere that that fall with the dogs, and just using a uh, my cell phone as a camera. And I had never seen anything like fall in the San Juans, like the colors of the aspens going thousands of feet up the mountainsides. In contrast with the peaks and the occasionally snow and the blue skies like so i was just shooting pictures like nuts with my phone and people seemed to like them and music was kind of going nowhere like i was trying to work on doing an album like in a home studio and i just was just wasn't working i was kind of like yeah i need to get a camera because you know this phones aren't doing it justice and i'm like what am i going to do with my life now like i've been here six months music thing isn't kind of working the way i hoped and i don't want to go back like my biggest reason for not wanting to go back to teaching or a regular job is now that i've been with the dogs 24 7 for six months I don't want to have to go to a regular job and leave them alone for eight or ten hours a day. I want them to be with me all the time.
0: Yeah. How, how do you see photography then as is it is it an expression for you? Is it is it a way of showing emotion? Yeah. It's like initially, I guess
1: I looked at it. I was like, okay, I've been let's you know
0: because ultras were
1: obviously like where I that was like my niche, and I was like, okay, I've been in, I've run ultra distant stuff for the last 15 years. Like I know what it's like as a runner to, to do these all the, all the adventure, the pain, the suffering, the joy, like all the ups and downs that come with all the stories. And when you're a runner yourself and I kind of was like, well, with the camera, let's see if I can bring that to the lens. Like if I can capture that, all those feelings I know what I felt. I wanna see if I can figure out how to do that to bring other people's stories to the lens in a way that seemed like authentic. And maybe I didn't say it in that many words at the time, but you know, I had a couple friends that shot. Like I had a friend in Silverton, Chris Furman, um, and he would always you know any local race that came to town he would he would shoot he'd be out at hard rock shooting stuff so it's like i saw you know i saw his stuff and he would talk to me about things i think also that summer in 2014 i forget if that's when matt trap was filming kissing the rock and he was at the avon and you know you would see a few people that did some of this stuff because as a runner, like. I was totally oblivious to media and, and photographers for the most part. So that was like a totally foreign world. And then, um, and then I had a good friend in L.A., this guy, Ivan Buzik, um, Slovakian guy. And he uh, he really helped me, like, pick out cameras. And he went to my first race that I ever shot which is like a 50 miler in Southern California called Old Goat. And yeah, he stood like a hundred feet on the way, hundred feet away from me on the trail and said, okay, you do this with the autofocus and blah, blah, blah. And, and I wound up shooting in my first race. You know, it, it's interesting to see like how you evolve because when you first do it, you know, you kind of, at least for me, it's like, yeah, I said I wanted to capture this, that, and the other, but you still really don't know what the heck you're doing. You're like, okay, I'm I'm capturing people running. And you're trying to like, well, where's like a pretty spot? You know, let me find a pretty spot. And okay, the runners look pretty here in this thing. But, you know, I wasn't thinking about finish lines, you know, per se, or aid stations or, you know, some of the other more – some compelling places where you're actually capturing like something going on, other yeah. than other than like, well, here's a cool shot of you running. Um,
0: and I think I think that's one of the things you know for the listeners out there. I've I've seen you you know, you've done the dirty 30, 50 K, which is close here in the front range, uh, um, but you know, I, I can remember I was crewing one of my athletes and close friends, uh, Kevin Goldberg at (laughs) Bigfoot 200. Um, gosh, this was his first, that was his first 200 miler. And then again in, in Tahoe. And I think at Bigfoot, I was, I, I remember I was like, Oh, who's this guy with the dogs? And like, that's when I first kind of had like, oh, I'm going to follow him on Instagram. And it it was what blew me away about you, Howie. And I think this is a a testament to your dedication to this work is you're not the guy that's like, I'm going to see at an aid station. Like you have great aid station photos, but I think some of your best work is the stuff that's, you know, 10 miles out uh, between a 20 mile leg. Like you're in you're like, this is going to be this great backdrop and this is going to be this, you know, I I wouldn't say that you only search out the epic shots, but you, you definitely put in the work to get into the more remote sections that truly show what the race is about and what's out there. Is that, is that become part of like what you would say is like part of what you do? Is that part of also what makes your job fun? Like what, 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 what's the calling to, to not just take the easy shots?
1: And that's, that's kind of how i originally like sold myself early on um because there were a number of races when i first approached them like i remember um i'm tough out in idaho was one of the early races i shot and i had a friend nick Nudel who was always running it and he's like you should go shoot that race he's like i'm friends with the race directors i can put you guys in touch And at the time, I I spoke to the race director, uh, Jeremy Humphrey, and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm reluctant to have a photographer again, because he's like, every time I I get one, you know, I pay for them, and they want fancy hotels, and then they just wind up, like, you know, shooting by an aid station or whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, like, I am, I'm a past hard rock finisher, I'm an ultra runner, like, I will hike to anywhere. <laughs> you know, like no matter how far or how high I have to climb, like he's like, that's just what I do. I'm like, I want to capture all like, you know, the good locations, the place the places that showcase what your race is about. And you know, and and that wound up it became kind of the model at all the races I shot was, yeah, it didn't matter where you had to hike to, that's just part of the gig, like if you have to hike 15 miles that day to um, get the shots, you you just did it. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who are way better than me at capturing like the, the scenery shots with runners, like Scott Rokas, who I work with all the time. Like, I think he's way better than, at it than me. And then he jokes that when it comes to the emotion shots, like that's my thing. And he still can't get it, but I don't believe him, but.
0: Um. <laughs> I don't know I think I think you know that You know, seeing Scott's work it's like I'm like I've I've been to where Scott is and he can make a place that I've been to before look like a place I've I, I can't imagine in my mind uh, right. and it's, and your stuff I think is great like I just I I just have this distinct memory of just like all these great shots you have of aid stations at night and even just like you know people getting water from an aid station it's like I may know these people or I've seen these people in the past. It's like, Oh, I can tell who that is. And you've got that like drip of sweat, just rolling off their, their chin at (laughs) just the right moment. I'm like, how, how does this, you know, as, as a guy who, you know, very lightly touches into photography, like, you know, thinking about how you've put this together and, and to get it at the right moment is such a, is, is, is what makes your work, I think so great. Uh, to be a part of. So you've kind of come through this, uh, era of first, you know, as either a participant or as a, as an athlete, uh, and now as a, as a, as a business owner, if you see yourself as that, like, how did you, you know, after that first gig, how did you then go, okay, I think this is how I'm going to make this a business. Like what was the, like, was it just from there? It was just get another gig, get another gig and take what you can get until it became
1: a thing it was it was an interesting road like the first the first few months i didn't cut like i only covered like two races like the first spring and um the second one was kind of a bigger race leona divide races and there was a lot of runners and you know, at the time I just said, Oh, as you know, I asked the race director cause I always would talk to race directors. I never just show up somewhere and, you know, I was like, Oh, is it okay if I shoot this race and your race and, um, you know, and you could send out a link to runners, I'll put your logo on it, whatever, you know, I'll, you know, but it's, you know, to sell the photos and it'll help promote your race. And she was down with it and people dug it and, somewhere that summer like the real breakthrough the first breakthrough um you know was i was good friends with um candace uh burt and she had a new race she was putting on (laughs) the bigfoot 200 (laughs) and she had done one 200 before like tahoe the year prior was her first ever 200 she put on so you know, going back to all these first, you know, 200s, then people were still like, you know, what's that? And so I came out to shoot Bigfoot and I had bought like a brand new camera, like a full frame Nikon, and had a couple of nice lenses. And, you know, I upgraded from the stuff I shot my original races on, which was more like entry level gear. And I said, because I looked at other people's stuff and I was like, the only <laughs> way, the only way I'm ever going to compete with you know the big people in the sport is like it's gonna it has to start with the tools like well i mean obviously like tools don't make it but like if you're at least shooting with similar gear you know once you learn how to use it then you can start getting you know pictures that look like theirs you know because there, there's a difference between certain lenses you know that are you know, $200 versus some of the lenses that are 2,800. They just render things differently or they make the background to look a certain way. So anyway, I, I changed my toolkit. I went up to Bigfoot, you know, one person covering a 200 mile race is kind of interesting, but again, you know, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'll just make the best of it. So it was like 112 out and 108 hour cutoff. Wow and I wound up sleeping only five hours (laughs) because
0: you you basically did the race
1: (laughs) right not you know not knowing what to expect you know because like at that point you know I had run quite a few hundreds but I'd only shot like two different 50 mile races you know whatever 14 hour races you know so I'm like okay here I am shooting now a hundred and eight hour race and I just tried to capture everything. Like I was doing all the on-trail stuff and, and then I would spend at night, I'd be at aid stations all night long and, and just doing this all the way down through the course. Candace at the time was like blown away. She, when she saw all the end results and I think a lot of people were like, wow, like, cause it over five days, you, you start to see stories you see people on the trail and then you're seeing them in aid stations and you're seeing them going from these happy, energetic runners to less energetic,
0: you know, like shells of humans (laughs)
1: to being a shell of themselves and then to being excited again, or, you know what I mean? The, The ups and downs of an entire event because you had enough time to actually capture it all. Yeah. And, and I think that was, that started to be a bit of a turning point where you saw a little bit more of what was possible, but I was still like, you know, starting to try to, to shoot whatever I could, you know, I always would talk to race directors, like, cause it always would drive me nuts. Like races, I was the hired photographer and then you'd have somebody else just randomly show up and then they sell their stuff, you know, advertise it on Facebook and undercut you
0: massively
1: and you are like why do you do that like is it so hard to go find your own races to shoot like <laughs> um that was always a huge peeve starting early out especially when you know like like i went all in like i was living in my truck there was there was no plan b i'm like i need to make this work because I don't want to go back to a regular job. I don't want to leave my dogs alone. I want my dogs to be able to be with me all the time. It sounds crazy, but my dogs were my biggest motivation of making this lifestyle work so that I could be with them um, because we were a pack. <laughs> and the first, couple of, the first couple of years were really hard. You know, I was lucky in the sense you know, because I had owned a condo, I was a teacher, you know, like I had good credit, I had credit cards. So whatever I wasn't making up in, you know, making money from photography, it's like, yeah, I was leveraging like my credit left (laughs) and right to pay, you know, like, Oh, I've got to travel 2000 miles to get to this race. Okay. You charge all your gas, you charge your food. Um, Oh, what I need $15,000 worth of gear. It's like, okay, you, you know, you're like, well, I'll just put it on credit, 6 months no interest or no payments, you know, and basically, you know, like just like a business with startup costs. It's like it's going to cost a lot more than you're making when you're starting. And I was like, well, you better get good and make it work or else you're never going to pay it off. And um, <laughs> no kidding. My my worst point was probably somewhere during my second year second or third year i forget but i remember being i was uh i don't remember if it was after i shot, shot barclay or somewhere where i had to drive halfway across the country and i was like i think i'm almost maxed out on every single credit card and i've got like 15 dollars in my bank account I think I have enough credit left on one of my cards to make it to Washington to shoot the Bigfoot 120. All I have to do is get there. <laughs> and I know I'll get some money and make it to the next month.
0: <laughs> wow. But what
1: if I but what if I break down in one of these towns? Will I have to like work at a diner to pay off like my food bill or gas bill, like or truck bill? Like that was like my rock bottom point where I was like it's either, either this next race, I will get past it. And cause the fall had a whole bunch more races and I'll be okay. Or it's just going to implode and I'm going to wind up trapped somewhere paying off, like, <laughs> you, know, w- you know, you know, working whatever, just to like pay off my debt to leave town.
0: <laughs> no, no better motivation, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was
1: it was that bad. Like, you know, where I was like, I mean, do I declare bankruptcy? Do I like give up and go back to a regular life? And I I made I made it to that race. Even though as I walked in the door to my hotel, I dropped my battery charger and it broke. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. How am I going to charge my camera batteries for the next 40 hours? Fortunately, a, a Walmart bailed me out in the area and had a universal charger. And I got over that hump, you know, started, you know, started shooting some bigger stuff or started getting the attention of some companies, you know, that were sponsors for the runners and getting more of into that side of things. And the biggest turning point, you know, and again, it still, it was like, you know, once I, there was still no plan B for me. I was just like, as much as it was difficult. And at some point you realize, you know, you know, everybody, you know, there's a whole van life thing and, Oh, this is cool to go, you know, live in your van for a year or whatever it is and gallivant all around. At some point I had the realization, me living in my truck was not really a choice anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, I could not afford to actually live anywhere cuz I just didn't I had too much debt and didn't earn enough to where I could consistently pay rent somewhere and you're like, "No, I'm genuinely have to do this." And it's kind of it's kind of a weird feeling when you're like something that was a choice at first and then suddenly you're like, "Nope." This is my reality. Like, I, I can't just go afford to live in a house anymore, or you know, an apartment, whatever. <laughs> and so you just keep plugging away and go. Well, the only way I can, you know, get out of this is, you know, to again try to keep growing and getting better and figuring out different avenues. You know, expand your income potential. Love and, that. And and what i think the the life-changing moment for me which really helped like get to another level and show a whole new world was like randomly one day like almost two years ago you know again you talk about networking and connections was i just saw like a post by a friend on facebook that said india i need a stills photographer Show me what you got. <laughs> and I send a message to my friend Derek Lytle and I'm like, dude, India, what's that about? <laughs> and you know, you know, just skipping details, it's like next thing you know, I'm on a plane to India <laughs> to shoot for two weeks, you know, for um in this case it was for iFit, which mm you know, affiliated with, you know, they own Nordic track and the treadmills and the workout videos for the treadmills, you know, that just opened up a whole other world, um, where, yeah, you have those little light bulb moments. Like I remember at the time walking through an airport in Amsterdam, you know, on a connection, just going, I was living in my truck a few months ago.
0: (laughs) And now I'm here. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and now I'm being sent halfway around the world to take photos. (laughs) I was like, Wow, like you just you don't know you just sometimes the twists and turns life takes you just can't imagine. And then later that year, like I hadn't heard anything after that job for like four months and I was like, Oh god, I must have sucked, like they must have hated it and and then I'm like out shooting the Tahoe two hundred and then all of a sudden, the, the phone rings while I'm on course, and this is on like a uh, a Sunday. They're like, they called me up, and they're like, "Can you be? Do you want? Can you do a shoot in Scotland this Friday?" I was like, "What? <laughs> How?" Like, I'm like, "Friday? That's like six days away." I'm like, uh, "Let me check my schedule. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can do yeah. that. <laughs> let me find somewhere to somebody to watch the dogs and." Um, and it turned out they actually loved what I had done in India, and um, and next thing you know, yeah, now you're in Scotland, or we we shot like you know like Easter Island and New Zealand mm-hmm. and all these other places. I, I think what what struck me as interesting is you know you talk about coming full circle, like as a kid. My dream was always to tour the world as a musician, and then here I was, now like thirty something years later. I was like, I would have never thought that it was a camera that was going to get me to see the world.
0: No um, kidding, right? Like you, you're going to have to take over as the host of this thing. I was like, man, he's, I was like, this, this is exactly <laughs> what it is. I, and and I think it, it it brings us to such a great point, you know, with with the podcast, you know, the, there's the big question, but I think I look at you know, so many firsts in your life, but also your life in a way has kind of been all of the stages of an ultra, just like you had talked about, you know, photographing the Bigfoot 200, there's the ups and the downs. And you kind of see people live life and over a matter of days, the highs and the lows that come with that. And, you know, as, as we kind of, kind of wrap things up. Cause I know that you and I could go on for hours <laughs> at, at beyond, I'll have to have you back because there's so many questions and I think our listeners will, will love this one. Um, no less for a long run. Um, so the, the big question is here, you know, looking at all those firsts and the highs and the lows and, you know, from living in the back of your, your truck, um, you know, w- w- without really foresight that in, in a matter of months you'd be, you know, flying all over the world, with a camera, let alone, you know, having it not even be a guitar. Um, The the big question is then how do you, how do you, Howie Stern define endurance? Kind of for me, it's, it's, it seems to be one of those things
1: that like, in some ways you might not even know what the final outcome will be of something, but it's sort of having faith or in having faith or believing in the process the things especially the things that you value and that mean the most, most they won't be easy and there's going to be a lot of hard times but you just have to like be willing to stick with things and and accept that there'll be like you know the path might diverge at times and you might lose your way but or question everything but in the end you still have to endure and ride out all those ups and downs to get somewhere even if that somewhere is you didn't even imagine it at the start I don't know and it's I think yeah and endurance it's a fleeting thing at the same time I don't think we always you can't be on all the time we don't always have it and it's okay at times to just to be that way
0: yeah to unplug and sometimes that's where the creativity comes I think you know, even, even as a coach and as a business owner, for me, like my other passion in the world is, is, is fly fishing. And it's like, there's nothing more unplugging than going (laughs) to the river that has no connection to anything. And it's just, it's the meditation of the water and the casting for me that, that totally pulls me away. But I think I, I, I love, I love how you've seen endurance and I hope people see, um, you know, that, the word endure i think kind of describes a lot of your your transitions from you know east coast to west coast let alone you know all, all the travel in in between is that you endured a lot um yeah. but you stuck you stuck to your values you stuck to your guns and uh i love it and i i want to let the people know uh that are listening out here what do, what do you have going on this has been a tough year in 2020
1: It's kind of a, yeah, kind of for any freelancers, it's sort of, um, it's a bit of choppy waters to say the least. You know, it's like my start, my year started off great with, you know, some projects overseas and then it went to five months of zero, (laughs) nothing. And then the last three months were like, almost nonstop with almost no breaks. But now it's kind of after the last two things, which was uh, Moab and then Javelina. Um And for some reason, I'm blanking. Oh, Bigs. Yeah, I had yep. three. Those were three big things in a row. And there was a bunch of iFit stuff and Courtney's Colorado Trail. But now the only things that I've got, like for this year remaining, I mean, I'm going to go out to Desert Solstice and another good party that. in the desert. Yeah, that could be um that'll be really interesting because there's definitely like that race is always it's fun in the sense that you know, you've got some world-class athletes going after, you know, world records. And yeah. The last two times I shot it, I was lucky that Camille, you know, she did the 12-hour world record and the following year I got the 24-hour world record, which even then she's broken it.
0: Sense. Yeah. So
1: it'll be interesting to see what this year brings. You know, seeing how they cover how uh, Aravipa put on javelina like they set the benchmark for how a race during the COVID times can be pulled off. Like I was pretty blown away with how good they they handled things or how well they handled things. And so I I have no doubts Desert Solstice will go the same. Plus, it's a very small field. Um, yeah. Outside of that, yeah, races, you know, I expect next year to, to still shoot the 200s. Um, a number of other races that I normally shoot hopefully will happen. Um, yeah. There's some other stuff I'm working on that depending on how travel goes, that hopefully can be some really interesting opportunities to to do documenting of expedition-style stuff in some, in some pretty, like, crazy places (laughs) which has definitely been one of my like you know that's like a long-range goal you know to cover like those kinds of things um
0: i can't wait to uh unpack what those things are at at some point we'll have to uh when you share those we'll make sure to uh to let our listeners know to to go look for some exciting content
1: yeah hopefully some cool stuff you know and and i want to just work on you know, like diversifying what I do, like, is there, you know, working on maybe my landscape stuff or getting into wildlife photography? I'd like to take some trips this winter. Maybe I can find wolves and photograph wolves because that's always, that's always been a dream because, you know, like, and, um, you know, finally work on an actual website. That's not just race photos, but (laughs) like, like portfolio, like this is what I do.
0: (laughs) I love that. Like I
1: haven't, I have a new domain for the last six months, but I haven't, Put together all the content for it
0: <laughs> but um, so as as we close out i uh where where can the people find you are you are you best found on instagram uh and if so what what is your handle there
1: yeah probably the widest variety of stuff at the moment yeah it's on instagram and it's just how we stern photo and um i mean i have a website which is how but yeah that's primarily just all the event photos from all the races i've shot and for anybody who's been at a race i've shot i mean i still have all the pictures from every race going back to 2015 so if you missed out on getting any they're all still there
0: <laughs> go take a look um, people I'm, I'm sure i'm sure how i got a good one of you somewhere
1: and other than that you know i've been fortunate to like ultra running magazine usually has my stuff it seems like almost monthly um i do stuff for trail runner um runners world and in various stuff so it's it's been a crazy journey. I would have never dreamed it five years ago. Like literally, I could not have imagined any of this. <laughs> um,
0: it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful life, isn't it?
1: It really is, and I think that's I know especially like in the in the virus times, like for a lot of people it's it's been a pretty dark place with all the isolation, with everything being cancelled and um, the uncertainty of the future. If I've learned one thing in my 51 years is you just never know what's around the corner. Even when things seem darkest, you just don't know. And that's sort of like what you just have to keep going on. Like that as bad as things can be, they turn around, you know, obviously barring illnesses and whatever, but, but just general life, there's always something around the corner. You just might not know it. You just have to have the hope and keep the faith that seems to be what always happens. Things always have a way of working out. And so hopefully that'll happen for all of us in 2021, or maybe it won't be till 2022.
0: You know? Yeah. Just a, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that, what what a great way to, to end things, Howie. Thanks again for hopping on with us and taking the time to share share your story and uh, share all about you. I'm really looking forward to releasing this one.
1: Oh, cool. Well, it's been a pleasure to be on. Um, absolutely i'm glad you enjoyed it i hope people enjoy it and uh yeah see what see what the rest of the the year and next year brings
0: (laughs) absolutely